Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Backer. Over a month ago, on December 1st, 2023, we released an episode on the global stock take in advance of COP28. As a reminder, the global stock take is the first ever inventory on the progress made by countries to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and take action on climate change to meet the targets laid out by the Paris Agreement. The global stock take, or GST, found that the world is off track to meet climate goals. At COP28 last month, State and non-state actors came together to discuss the GST findings and identified key signals or steps that need to be taken in order to deliver action and reduce global emissions. In this episode, I am joined by Jennifer Huang, Associate Director of International Strategies at the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, C2ES, and Kave Gillenpoor, Vice President of International Strategies at C2ES. Both Kave and Jennifer attended COP28 in Dubai, and in this episode, we discuss the successes of COP28 and look ahead to what's next for global climate action in 2024. Kave and Jennifer, thank you both so much for being here with me today. Thank you very much for inviting us. It's good to be on. And thank you so much for having me. Of course. So you both were in Dubai and attended the COP. How was it? COP28 was both really stressful and rewarding. Part of that is because C2ES has been engaged in a multi-year project that's focused on an ambitious global stock take outcome. So we had essentially been preparing for this COP for over two years. And then rewarding in that this has been one of the most important COPs since Paris. It's the first time parties would assess their progress towards the goals of the Paris Agreement and conclude this new mechanism, the global stock take, which is meant to galvanize ambition and keep a climate action momentum going. So as we've discussed before on this podcast, the global stock take was a main focus and outcome of COP28. Jennifer, can you remind our listeners what the other outcomes of COP28 were? Sure. So everybody knew that there were mandated outcomes to come out of COP28. One of those is the conclusion of the global stock take. Another outcome was the operationalization of a loss and damage fund, which was agreed at COP27. And another is the adoption of a framework for the global goal and adaptation that's set out by the Paris Agreement. So the outcome achieved all of those, but there was also a large amount of pressure and support for language around the phase out of fossil fuels and a target for tripling renewable energy capacity by 2030. Neither of those have their own work program under the UN Convention on Climate Change, but there's strong expectations around the world about having some sort of language to address those two. C2ES in particular was looking for three things in relation to the outcome on the global stock take, and we were hoping for a clear and unambiguous signal that the world will accelerate the transition away from fossil fuels. C2ES was also looking for assurance that this would be reflected in the climate targets of countries to be tabled in 2025, as well as a commitment to enhance international cooperation to tackle climate change. And the outcome largely achieved these objectives, some more so than others. 
So I'd like to speak a little bit more about the loss and damage fund. What exactly does it mean that COP28 operationalized the loss and damage fund? So the Paris Agreement refers to uh, loss and damage, and that was quite a controversial issue that formed part of the Paris Agreement. And the US and some other countries in particular were very keen to ensure that the reference to loss and damage didn't apply any change in the international regime vis-a-vis the issue of compensation. So that was a very contentious issue. But there is an article in the Paris Agreement that refers to loss and damage. Vulnerable countries, particularly the small islands and least developed countries, have been pushing for two decades for a fund. And that sort of culminated in particular at Sharm el-Sheikh, where the decision was taken to establish a loss and damage fund. That was on paper only. And the work was undertaken during 2024, particularly through the Transitional Committee. A series of meetings of the Transitional Committee was a sort of representative body mandated at Sharm el-Sheikh to try to elaborate and operationalize the fund. So in terms of things like governance arrangements, location, etc. So the Transitional Committee met a number of times through 2024 and came up with a proposal to operationalize the fund on the eve of the COP. And I think what was unique about this COP was that that recommendation was adopted on the first day of the COP. And I think this is the first time, certainly in all the times I've been to COPs, where a substantive issue has been agreed on the first day of the COP. So not only was that decision adopted, but we had on the first day of the COP in the plenary, a number of countries pledging significant amounts of money to put into the fund. Just a couple things that I can add to what Kaveh said is that operationalizing the loss and damage fund at COP27, there was the agreement to have loss and damage funding arrangements and a loss and damage fund, but that didn't actually set out, as Kaveh said, what the governance infrastructure might look like. So COP28 largely adopted whether this would be a standalone fund, who will manage the fund, how the funds will be dispersed and to whom and how. Also, the funds itself, it was very quickly capitalized at the start of COP28. This sounds like a win for the international community. Was it considered as such? So the operationalization of the loss and damage fund and the agreement of the decision on the first day of the COP was certainly a big win for the international community. And while it was very contentious in the negotiation of that, the distinct feeling that I got from the plenary I was sitting near some ministers from developed and developing countries at the time when it was adopted. I think the universal feeling was that it was a good thing to have adopted and that it really is an important item and really a game changer for the way forward. Thanks, Jennifer and Kaveh. It's really great to hear that COP28 delivered on this contentious agenda item. So now let's turn back to the global stock take. How do we know that the global stock take was successful in galvanizing countries to become more ambitious in their climate action? So we won't really know, I think, until the new nationally determined contributions or the NDCs start to come in. The key signals that were laid out in the global stock take outcome do need to be addressed in parties' new or enhanced NDCs. We might actually start to find out as early as next year The outcome establishes an annual global stock take dialogue that will begin to discuss implementing the global stock take outcomes, and that will start in June of 2024. And it's a much better outcome than 
was possible in the sense that there was a possibility that this could have been a very procedural outcome that takes a very backward-looking assessment of where parties stand against the Paris goals, which would not necessarily lend itself to parties strengthening their ambitions. So it was a great outcome that it takes this forward-looking approach setting out signals that parties can take up in enhancing their implementation and increasing international cooperation throughout 2024. To clarify, is the idea that the stock take makes recommendations for countries to be able to enhance their mitigation and adaptation efforts and that in the next round of NDCs, countries will take up these recommendations in their renewed NDCs? There was some misunderstanding around the mandate of the global stock take going into COP28. There was an expectation by some that it would result in an immediate increase of ambition. And the mandate's clear. It's to inform, enhance ambition and also to enhance international cooperation. The moment of truth as to whether or not the global stock take has succeeded. And actually, in many ways, whether COP28 was a success will be in 2025 when we see the collective impact of the new nationally determined contributions. There's actually no formal process for 2024 in terms of that NDC enhancement. And CTUS pressed very strongly. We were pushing for very strong signals to come out of the global stock take, such as on the tripling of renewable energy and other aspects. And a critical part of our vision was that there would be a process or some kind of follow-up in 2024 to make sure that those recommendations were taken up and implemented. Now, there's some aspects of the decision coming out of COP28 that lay the groundwork for that, but it's not entirely clear. And it's still important that there is some kind of follow-up this year, particularly in the NDC preparation process. All countries will now be busy preparing their NDCs. And the mandate is clear that those NDCs have to be informed by the outcome of the global stock take. And the Katowice decision also specifies that countries need to explain in their NDCs how they're responding to the outcome of the global stock take. But we won't actually see the results of that until 2025. And countries are supposed to submit their NDCs in the first quarter of 2025, which would then give us nine months to reflect on what the collective level of ambition is and for the UNFCCC Secretariat to produce a synthesis report outlining that collective level of ambition in advance of COP30, which will take place in Brazil. To help our listeners better visualize this, what would increased ambition look like from a U.S. policy perspective? The mandate of the global stop take is clearly collective. So the signals coming out of this apply collectively to all countries. So it doesn't point out to particular groups of countries or individual countries as to what they should do. So the challenge has always been taking that aspect of the Paris Agreement and the fact that nationally determined contributions, as their name suggests, are nationally determined. How does a collective assessment from the global stock take inform a nationally determined process for new climate targets in 2025? So having clear signals, such as the sectoral targets that were set out in the global stock take decision, is helpful to countries and domestic policymakers in terms of giving some ideas and some direction of travel in terms of what the policies need to be. And on top of that, there was also a process at the technical level 
under the global stock take that resulted in the synthesis report that has a number of detailed recommendations and analyses that domestic policymakers could take on board. So in terms of the informing part of the global stock take, that's all there. How countries respond to that is up to them. But when they do submit their NDCs, there is this expectation, I would say, the countries will need to make clear how they're responding to the outcome. There's also requirements in the Paris Agreement that there needs to be a progress in ambition. So there's expectations that subsequent NDCs will be more ambitious. So we know what the US current NDC is, and we will all be looking eagerly to see that it has made a progress in terms of level of ambition. And of course, things like the Inflation Reduction Act and other initiatives obviously clear the domestic space for that increased ambition. But we will really have to see what the US comes forward with in 2025 in terms of that enhanced NDC. Thank you, Kaveh. That makes a lot of sense. So I think it was Jennifer who previously spoke to the tripling of renewable energy capacity by 2030. Did COP28 establish any pathways forward to ensure that that comes to fruition? So COP28 agreed on tripling renewable energy capacity globally by 2030. So that's a collective recommendation. And of course, that will vary by country as to what that means domestically, because some countries are already at 100% renewable energy. So obviously, they can't triple. And some countries in Europe are at 50% or more renewable energy capacity they can't triple. So this is really a question of what can individual countries do that collectively amounts to a global tripling of renewable energy by 2030. I think it's pretty clear that to stay within a 1.5 compatible pathway, advanced economies such as the US and emerging economies such as China, India, Brazil and others will have a pretty clear internal analysis of what they need to do domestically to contribute to that tripling of renewable energy globally. So an economy like China, I think, will have very little difficulty in that given the sort of extraordinary expansion of renewable energy in their domestic energy mix. We just spoke about renewables. Now let's turn to fossil fuels. I know there was some debate over the language around the phase out versus the phase down of fossil fuels. So where did the final agreement end up landing? A lot of expectation and pressure going into COP28 that it should set out some sort of signal in terms of fossil fuels. This was for a number of reasons. Firstly, COP26 in Glasgow was the first time that we had a decision that referred to any kind of fossil fuel in terms of the phasing down of unabated coal. I think there was an expectation that COP28 would build on that. Secondly, given where the COP was hosted, in particular with a COP presidency that is in a country that relies to a large extent on the production of fossil fuels, there was also that expectation and pressure to deliver some sort of signal on fossil fuels. And as tends to be the case, there was a fairly clear and blunt demand that emerged from civil society and a number of countries, which was articulated in terms of a phase out of fossil fuels. Now, for a number of reasons, some countries pushed back on that. And in the end, what we got was this language in the COP decision, which 
talks about transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just, orderly and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. And in my view, what we came out with in effect is the same as a phase out, but it's in language that recognizes some of the challenges in terms of just transition that it needs to be equitable, particularly developing countries will be hit more economically by a transition away from fossil fuels. And it needs to be an orderly transition because the reality is that the world needs energy. And if we were just to switch off fossil fuel production tomorrow, as we've seen with some of the shocks as a result of the war in Ukraine and other price shocks, the global economy just can't cope with a rapid transition away. So the COP28 presidency talked throughout 2023 about this notion of working towards a world that was free of unabated fossil fuels in 2050. And essentially what we've landed here in the COP28 outcome is a version of that language, which I think is a fair balance of the political reality of where we are and what we need to do. I actually think the wording is better and more operational than just the words phase out of fossil fuels. Thanks, Kaveh, for providing that context. And in line with talking about equity and just transition, can you speak more to the progress that was made on the global goal on adaptation at the COP? The Paris Agreement established a global goal on adaptation in Article 7.1. That taken with the long-term goal in terms of achieving global resilience in Article 2.1b of the Paris Agreement, both those things could be taken as the sort of guiding stars on adaptation. However, the global goal as it described in Article 7.1 was never really operational or it wasn't really clear how to operationalize it. Because unlike, for example, the long-term temperature goal in the Paris Agreement, where over the years we've established an entire architecture around that. So we have now well-established the notion of net zero emissions by 2050. We have the temperature goals of well below 2 and 1.5. We have an entire transparency and reporting regime. The adaptation aspects have never really had that level of granularity. And in my view, for that reason, adaptation has always suffered because what tends to happen is that it's very easy to coalesce around collective asks for mitigation, such as let's stay on a 1.5 pathway, let's go to net zero emissions by 2050. For adaptation, we haven't had that equivalent. So what has tended to happen is that the political pressure on adaptation has focused largely on issues of finance rather than substance. So what the presidency of COP28 tried to do is to guide the discussions around this in order to deliver on the mandate of a framework on the global goal on adaptation, and that was achieved. So now what you have also is a layered approach where you have what I would call, and probably incorrectly, some sort of sectoral targets for adaptation for the world to work towards. And then underneath that, in the actual framework itself, moves towards indicators and ways of measuring progress towards those. So if you look at the global stock take decision, which sort of has the political messaging on adaptation in it, it talks about 
reducing water scarcity, attaining climate resilience in food and agriculture, resilience in terms of health. It talks about reducing impacts on ecosystems and biodiversity. It talks about increasing the resilience of infrastructure and human settlements, reducing the adverse effects of climate change on poverty, eradication, protecting cultural heritage. So these are all sort of sectoral aspects now that countries can work towards. And it gives a little bit more of guidance of what it would mean to achieve the global goal. The whole purpose of the global goal is to feed into that global stocktake process. So by the time we have the second global stocktake in 2028, we will be in a much better position to assess global progress towards becoming more resilient, which is, of course, absolutely critical as impacts get worse, even if we manage to keep global temperatures within the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit of the Paris Agreement. Thanks, Kame. We have touched upon a lot of the successes of COP28 in this episode so far. For our listeners, I would love it if we were able to just synthesize what you think were the biggest successes of the conference and indicate where you feel the conference fell short. So in terms of the substantive successes of COP28, I would say towards the top end of expectations in terms of the global stocktake outcome. And I think it's a really clear signal that we are now in a process of transitioning away from fossil fuels. But at the same time, we also have the building blocks of creating the energy system of the future while we work towards dismantling the energy system of today. I think the agreement to operationalize the loss and damage fund and to capitalize it was a major breakthrough that is going to be vital in real terms for the most vulnerable people around the world, but also in political terms to make progress in the coming years, because that's going to be essential. The progress on the global goal on adaptation is also absolutely critical. So in terms of substantive outcomes, they were vital. In terms of process, first of all, it's the first COP that I can ever remember where there were no agenda issues at all at the start of the COP. So the fact that all countries exercised restraint in terms of adding to the agenda and not using gender items as a proxy for making political points. I think that was really an important breakthrough in terms of the way that the COPs are conducted. Secondly, the fact that we were able to agree on one of the main deliverables for the COP at the start of the COP is just extraordinary. I didn't see that coming. And normally, all these things are held back until the last moment because countries are worried that if they give something away, they lose leverage. The fact that we're getting to a point where such an important outcome can be agreed at the beginning is a really positive sign. Another positive trend I think that we've seen since the Paris Agreement was adopted is that countries are allowing the top presidency and also the presiding officers, the chairs of various meetings, to come forward with and to iterate textual proposals for adoption. We came into COP28 without a text on the global stocktake. So if we'd taken up the same mode of work that we had in the run-up to the Paris Agreement, we would have never have left the COP with a decision because every line of the Paris Agreement, I mean, we had a 200-page text in Geneva in the run-up to Paris. We had nothing coming into COP28. So I think this evolution of the process to allow presiding officers and the COP presidency 
to iterate text, I think is really good that that is now firmly established because it was becoming really impossible to operate. So those are the positives. The notes of concern or areas where I think we do need progress is that there's a lot of potential ambition that's been captured in the global stock take decision, but we need the means of implementation to deliver that. So in 2024, where the world is supposed to agree at COP29, the new collective quantified goal on climate finance. So that is likely to include the successor to the the famous 100 billion, but it will also need to elaborate what we mean by Article 21C, which in the common parlance is a sort of shifting of the trillions in the global economy to be aligned with the climate goals of the Paris Agreement. And that's going to be challenging because the vast majority of finance flows in the global economy are amongst the G20 countries. And of those finance flows, the vast majority, to the extent that they are climate aligned, are aligned for mitigation purposes. So if the world wants to align international finance flows in a way that is to the benefit of countries that are outside the G20, but also addresses issues of things like climate resilience and adaptation, and I would say also loss and damage, that will need policy intervention because those flows are not going to deviate of their own accord. So essentially, the ambition that is possible as a result of the global stock take is inevitably going to be determined to a large extent on the means of implementation that are available to realize that ambition. And 2024 will be vital for that. Well, thank you for that synthesis. And my last question is, is there anything that our listeners should be looking for between now and the next COP? What happens now between the next COP, one is that there are going to be numerous climate meetings, both through and about the climate negotiations. The parties and non-parties have been invited to submit topics and recommendations for various work in 2024. And at the June subsidiary bodies meeting, parties will start to take up a lot of the technical work that underpins the work coming out of or delayed from COP28. I would also mention that there are going to be a lot of elections that are taking place around the world this year, over 60 plus, including the United States election. So those elections could affect the dynamics that we see. 2024 will be a vital year for countries to do the necessary preparations to come forward with their new climate targets in 2025. So domestic processes will be really important. And the more the countries involve key stakeholders, whether it's the private sector, whether it's civil society, subnational actors like states and mayors of cities, the more involvement there is in this, the more there will be buy-in and also longevity in terms of making sure that we meet those targets. The second thing that will be critical is watching for progress on this issue of the new collective quantified goal on finance, because the availability of finance and means of implementation will be critical to realize ambition. And the whole world will be watching to see what the result of the US election is in November. Inevitably, that will have a huge impact on the US position on climate change. But in reality, when you look at what's happening domestically in the US, at the state level, 
and at the local level, there is an enormous acceleration of the trend towards renewable energy that's unstoppable. So in that sense, I think it's important to realize that there is a trend here within the US that is towards a transition away from fossil fuels. And that just is simply because it makes economic sense. Renewables are by far the cheapest source of new energy, and that's not going to change anytime soon. Well, Jennifer, Kave, it's been great to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.